How's it going, guys? And so for today's episode of Improvement, we have on a special guest. His name is Asaf Luxembourg. And so just to give you some background on how we know each other, about, I would say, two or three summers ago, I took a trip with the Texas A&M Corps of Cadets to Israel, and we got to speak to him. And I thought that the message that he delivered to us is pretty insightful, and I figured he could offer a lot of value to you guys. And so, Asaf, if you'd like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Asaf Luxembourg. I am from Israel. Um, and my scratch in life is to really promote my country. You can call that patriotism or, or not. Um, a long time ago, I was young and my dream was to be an ambassador. And I started building my career towards that. I ended up starting my own business. And today I have a business that literally deals with promoting um, what my country has to offer from the business point of view. I do a lot of stuff related to high tech. So when we met in Israel, the context of the meeting was around that. But I also do a lot of other things like um, sort of career coaching. We'll probably talk about that. I'm a marketing consultant. I work with startups and funds and companies and organizations and agencies doing mostly storytelling, marketing language, pitching, that sort of thing. And I am a partner in a firm called Plus. 972, which is by no accident the country code for Israel. So that's pretty much it. Um, 36 years old, born and raised here in Israel, married plus two. That's all I'm willing to reveal so far. All right. All right. Great. And so I guess my next question would be, what would you say inspired you to get into the field that you're in now? What would you say inspired you to take the path that you've taken today? Right. So maybe it's worth sharing with the audience. So since, you know, taking things seriously, you know, you sent me like a prep doc with questions, which I have here with notes. So I'm super happy to go over it. And it's actually related to the topic of, you know, embracing and owning things seriously. So up until I was, I would say 22 or three, I had different passions in life. I was actually a musician. My best friends in high school were synthesizers and recording software. So I was the perfect combination of a nerd, because that's a lot of like, you know, sound design and, and software and computers. On the other hand, back in those days, um, hip hop was not really a thing in Israel, but electronic music and EDM like took it big because we're influenced by Europe. Mm -hmm. So I want to be DJs and producers or whatever you call that, um, who wanted to also do their own musics came to me, the nerd kid. So I, this was my life. Um, but there was a moment in time after my army service in, in Israel, back when I was 22, 23, where I literally fell in love with what is what I consider is my career path, which is what I said in the beginning. That's how it started. Everything else is just tumbling down the rabbit hole. It was a moment in time where I fell in love with an idea of what I want to do in my life. I had zero idea how I'm going to do it, but I knew what I want to do and why. Uh, that's great that you were able to find that, you know, after, after taking some time to do your own thing at first with music. And so one question I have to follow up on that was what was the process like for you when you were discovering your life purpose? What was the catalyst or 
what different events, if you're comfortable, transpire that led to you eventually figuring out what you wanted to dedicate your life to. Right. So again, I'm going to try to like internationalize the story, but super fine to go into the details of the context. So there's a program uh, related to Israel called Birthright Israel or Taglit, which basically brings Jews from all over the world to see Israel for the first time. And they, they up until COVID at least, they used to also uh, bring Israelis to join the bus. So there would be like an actual meeting between people from different places. Because the best way to get to know a place is to get to know locals. So I was one of those Israelis. I was a soldier in the army towards the end of my service. And I was sent literally as a, some sort of, instead of a vacation, as a bonus, if you want, for five days to join a, a bus and meet people from all over the world and tour Israel with them. And just to tell them how it, how it is being here. And it was in that, it, it was in those five days where, you know, my jaw fell down. Because um, I realized that, you know, devoting my life to something of higher value, which is, you know, showing the truth about the place which I'm from and showing the potential values it could bring and to get people to know it better, not necessarily to persuade them of anything, but just to get to know the truth. I fell in love with that. So in the beginning, I wanted to be the tour guide. Very early, early on, I disqualified the option of becoming a tour guide. Right. And then, never mind the details, but I fell in love with the idea of becoming an ambassador. Because a diplomat, by definition, you know, their job is to promote their countries in an official way, still. And not only that, one of the officials in that organization that you know, took part of those programs, he was an ex-ambassador. So I said, Asaf, that's it. You need to become a diplomat, have like a mini career until you're 40 something, then quit and then go do other things that relate to the same you know, passion and mission, just like that guy does. And it was clear to me that I'm gonna be an ambassador. So I started arriving backwards, okay, what do I need to study in order to become an ambassador? Mind you, a 23-year-old in Israel just finished his army service, kind of an equivalent to an American or North American 18-year-old, meaning mm -hmm. you have to go to university or college. You do it at a later age. So what should I study in order to become an ambassador? Okay, obviously, like political science, let's mix it with economics. And let's take jobs, like, you know, studential jobs in the Israeli government that will help you, you know, get on that path. And I played chess throughout my 20s, moved all the pieces to the right location so that by the time I'm 30, I applied the cadet course and I become an ambassador. And obviously that did not happen. And that was the big break for me. I had a huge meltdown. I had a, like a sort of a career crisis when I was 30 years old. Never mind the details, but eventually I understood I'm not going to be an ambassador. And the big eureka was that I understood that being an ambassador was not the goal. It's a mean to an end. It's a way to reach the goal. If the goal was to do the things I want to do, there could be other ways of doing them. And that's how I started my business. My business was born out of a you know, great misery and a sense of failure that I didn't get in the cadets course in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That's a little bit about the process of how it went. I didn't become free, a freelancer and like a business owner all at once. It took a few years had a day job and I was doing like a side hustle. Um, but that's how I got to the moment where today, you know, just doing me. 
Okay. And you touched on something that was pretty interesting, actually. And uh, this is something I see in some of your other content where you talked about not necessarily committing to, I would say, to make an analogy, not committing to the vehicle, meaning like the way to get to the end goal, but just committing to the goal. So that way, if you know the process you have to take ends up changing, it's not the end of the world. You can find other means to be able to get to that end goal. Could you elaborate on that a little bit and talk about why that's important? Yeah, sure. So uh, the way I experienced it, I love analogies. So the way I experienced it, there was a mountain that I wanted to climb. And, you know, there's a path, you know, with stairs, the whole thing and a road up the mountain. And someone literally like blocked the road and, you know, suddenly there's like a canyon and like the road is blocked. You can't go through the road. But the road is not important. Getting to the top of the mountain is important. So, you know, what do you have to do? You have to take a machete and start going through the bush, right? Like carve your way, you know, up the mountain. That's how I felt with at least the early years of my independent um, journey. Um, I did not know Simon Sinek at the time, although he was already famous. It was later on that I uh, discovered his Start With Why book and talk and everything. And in a way that's, I think it relates to the journey that I'm in a way still going through. And the big takeaway for me was disconnect the why from the what and the how. So for those of you in the audience that may know Simon Sinek, that's great. For those of you who don't, go check it out. But basically, if he talks about focusing on your why, for me, it really was, you know, a disconnect. Disconnect the why from the what and the how. I talk a lot. I used to talk a lot about innovation, especially in the times when we met in Israel. I still do. In a way, I believe this is where true innovation comes from. If you focus on your why, you know, why you want to do what you do and who do you want to do it for, let the market tell you the what and the how. Let them go. They are not thing that defines you. Um, and then you're able to adapt to changes and innovate and reinvent yourself. I felt like a complete loser when I went to sign up the tax authority to become a freelancer. I really did. Today, it's like, you know, the, the new superstar or cowboy. Everybody wants to be like successful freelancers in a way and own their own business. It wasn't like that for me. I didn't want this what and how, but it was about the why and who. Okay, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I guess to show that my situation somewhat relates, I kind of had a similar situation when it came to starting the podcast. And so I knew what my goal was. I knew what I had an interest in, but I didn't necessarily know how to do it. And so it kind of got to a point to where I knew I wanted to offer value to other guys and help guys to be able to move through difficult situations I've faced in life and may not have had help to deal with. And then I started to think, well, how am I getting the help? I'm listening to podcasts. I'm looking at YouTube videos, uh, different content like that. Why not start there? And so I can definitely uh, relate to what you're saying about maybe not necessarily dedicating yourself to the means to do it, but the path. I mean, not, I mean, the goal, <laughs> dedicate yourself to the goal, not the path, because, you know, I'm still fairly new to this and so far it's working out well, but you never know. 
tomorrow something could change, you know, to where I might not be able to do podcasting anymore, but knowing what my end goal is, knowing what my, my mission or my purpose is, it makes it to where I can find other paths to get to that destination instead of, you know, my Absolutely. whole world coming to an end by, you know, not being able to do podcasting if that happened. Absolutely. And just to, you know, just complete this topic, because you asked about, you know, sharing with your audience. So there's a known Israeli entrepreneur um, by the name of Uri Levine. And he was one of the founders of Waze. Many of you out there probably oh, yeah. know, which was bought by Google and a big success story. And there's a saying that really, you know, um, I don't know if he invented it, but it's related to him in many places. He's known for saying, fall in love with the problem. Fall in love with the problem, not your solution. Your idea for the startup may suck. You know, what you want to develop and sell in your e-com business may not work. You know, the kind of jobs that you want to do because you think you could be good at it, you may not be good at it, or you are, but the market doesn't need it right now. So don't fall in love with a solution. Fall in love with a problem. If you fall in love with a problem, you can let the solution be a variable. The market will help guide you to the solution. And I think for many young professionals nowadays, this is a really important topic. So I guess we'll talk about it a little bit later on. A lot of the work that I do today is related to develop an entrepreneurial mindset, not necessarily an entrepreneurial career as a profession. Um, and I think it's super important for employees, entrepreneurs, freelancers, you name it, especially in today's world. So fall in love with the problem. I'm in love with the problem. For me, it's still a problem. I'm far from solving it, but it's one of what it's what I want to say that I did in my life. You know, dealing with this problem, building that legacy, right? It's not just the legacy is like a derived outcome. Mm -hmm. What I want people to say about me, and how I helped fight the problem. The problem for me is that a lot of people have misconceptions around my country because of media bias, lies you know, a lot of things. And, you know, whether they disagree or agree with me or they like me or don't like me or us, you know, in Israel, it doesn't matter. But for me, the mission is to get them to know the truth and then they can decide. For me, this is like the burning, you know, the ever burning bush, if you want. You know, that's what guides me. I can't see myself doing anything else that has no at least derived relationship to this problem. Otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm not the right man for the job in a way. I need that connection. Doesn't have to be direct, but I need it somewhere to, to explain to myself why I'm giving blood, sweat and tears for a certain thing. I respect that, you know, having that conviction towards your cause. And I feel like there are also some other benefits that come with that. And so to harp off of that, I'll ask, did having a strong purpose have an effect on your ability to be able to create solutions? Did it make you more dedicated and creative whenever you had something that you could strongly tie yourself into? Look, it's a good question because in a ways it did because the way I see it, me serving my clients is what matters. 
not me selling what I have on the shelf right now. And if my client's needs change, I'm the first one to throw away everything I have on the shelf and go develop what they need. So in the one hand, yes. So it's what I said before, you know, if you know your why and you focus on your why and the who, who do you want to serve and why, let the what and the how go. On the other hand, I can share with you that I'm, you know, I'm also struggling with the other side of it. Maybe I'm too locked in. Maybe I'm too zeroed in on a few things and I'm not being able to see, you know, sideways and expand to more things. I have that tension all the time, but it's a, I think it's a, it's, it's in a way a, a somewhat healthy entrepreneurial tension to have. Every business owner thinks maybe I'm missing out. Maybe we should do more things, but maybe it's not who we are. So even if we succeed at it, it's not what we want to build with this company. So, you know, these thoughts are always there. All right. Right. And so I guess to touch on one of the other things you talk about in your content, I guess is pretty related to this, what we're talking about now is how to be the CEO of you. And so could you give the audience a quick summary of what that means to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, the quick context is that now that I explained my why and you know, my greater goal, a few years ago, well, let's put it this way. Um, in 2007, end of 2007, a book came out called Startup Nation, which made huge headways, uh, huge, you know, waves around the world. It really, you know, um, nailed Israel's brand as a place of startups and innovation and technology and entrepreneurship. Not that Israel wasn't that before, but the book brought that story to everyone. It was a huge thing. And from 2008 for something like 10 years, um, you know, everybody came here to try and look for the next ways to try and see what is it in the Israeli mindset? You know, what can we take from this story? Politicians, policymakers, entrepreneurs, investors, business people, MBA students, everybody came here. And a few years ago, in 2008, more or less, a little bit before, I started seeing that for a lot of people, they don't necessarily aspire to be startup entrepreneurs, but a lot of people are struggling with an entrepreneurial mindset in what is a very changing and dynamic world of work. So I used to meet a lot of young professionals, you know, 20 year old something, individuals, talents from all over the world. And for a long time, you know, my generation all people wanted to do is, you know, think about the next big idea for the next app, go fundraise from, you know, an angel or two, take an office of WeWork, print the t-shirt with your logo on it, and start working on your tech startup. And I started seeing that fade away, and a lot of people look for an entrepreneurial career path, not necessarily be an entrepreneur as a profession. And I said, if that's what people struggle with, and I'm a service-minded individual, I want to help people and by that connect them to Israel, I need to maybe bring some value to that. So what I did was start taking business lessons from the world of innovation, entrepreneurship, business, and so on, into the world of career building and personal and professional development. That's the context. So I did it not because I wanted to be a coach or anything like that. I don't consider myself a coach. I did it because I saw it's a way to connect people with Israel. So what I did is use stories of people, companies, 
case studies, our history, modern history, biblical analogies, everything that I could use for my bag of culture um, to add value for a more healthy entrepreneurial thinking. And just to wrap it up, over a period of something like two years, I started packaging a lot of things into like some sort of a, I don't want to say it like a methodology or anything like that. It's not my, um, you know, methodology, but a certain perspective. And that's the business unit perspective that I mainly communicate today, which is all about the idea that individuals need to see themselves as if they are the CEO of them they incorporated. So whoever's listening right now, you could be working for the bank your entire life, and that's fine. You don't need to be an entrepreneur. But in order to survive and thrive in today's world of work, I believe each and every one of you should think as if you are the CEO of you Incorporated or ULTD or ULLC, whether you have a company or, you know, of your own or, or don't. And then that mindset changes a lot of practical things in the workspace. I like how you found a way to tie it into, I guess, the minds of the people who aren't necessarily entrepreneurial focused, but how even though someone could be, you know, a corporate finance person or a nurse or any other type of profession, it's not uh, a business owner type profession, they can still think of their life like a business, thinking like how they're building their own brand and how they need to make sure they live a life that's conducive to that. And so to go into the next question, I would ask, what are some practical tips that you would give to the listeners to help them become the CEOs of their life, if you could give a few? Right. So for those who are interested, in order not to take too much time from this interview, a lot of it is online. I publish a lot of things for free. Um, many of them are also recurring. So it's the same idea from different angles. So you can find the one that fits you know, better for you, uh, for each and every one of you. But oh, here are a few. If you are the CEO of you, then your boss is not your army commander that gives you instructions which you need to comply. If you are the CEO of you, by definition, your boss is your customer. Now, if your boss is your customer, the customer is not always right. The customer always has to be served. Service is an important thing. So what that brings about, instead of coming to work and you know, doing what you're asked to do and do it faster, even better, and then ask for a promotion, over time, I think that will not work. Thinking like a business unit, you need to think about sales. So it's not about doing what I do better and then ask for more money. What I think a healthy perspective could be, what other needs do my clients have which I could answer for? And then go and try to create solutions for that. And if you increase the value that we bring to your customer, you can ask for more returns. If you bring the same value in less time, not necessarily you're gonna get more returns. So very basic business understanding, just to bring it into the individual mindset. Like here's an example. Let's say you need to hire a lawyer to write a contract for you. And the price of the contract is X. If the lawyer does it in less time, Good for the lawyer. Not necessarily you're willing to pay more for that. But if the lawyer is able to help you with more things, maybe that's worth for you to pay more for the lawyer for that. 
So a lot of people, you know, they get better at their job and they're frustrated by not being promoted. It's because you need to add more new value. You need to sell to your client and serve your client. So that's one idea. Another idea is for how people look for jobs. So a lot of people look for jobs. They go into the job market and they see who is available right now that wants someone like them. And then they go and they, you know, they try to maximize from what's there right now. But this is a very limited mindset. Better mindset could be trying to actually identify your golden prospects. If you're the CEO of you, think which clients do you want to have? Who do you really want to work for? If everyone's paying the same, who do you want to work for? What do you want to do with them? Why? If you go and communicate that to them, you're able to really stand out from the others because you're looking for people who align with their mission, not just who's available right now. So, you know, there are ways to do it better if you're thinking like a business for yourself. And again, the practice and how to do it, and it's all online. So these are like two examples you want. Okay. And one thing that I really like about this ideology that you came up with is that it forces people to, one, take accountability, I guess you could say. It's not to where they're just kind of a, a victim, just riding the wave, going with the motions and everything with their boss or with their job. Uh, but they're being intentional about their life. They're being calculated about how they want to move about their career and other aspects of their life, almost as if they're a business. Look, one of the things that I try to communicate outside um, to as many people as possible, like the responsibility has shifted in a way in the new world of work. You can say it's because of the internet. You can say it's because of culture. You can say it's because of technology. You can say it's because of a lot of things. But it used to be that, you know, whose responsibility is it to make sure that you produce more than your cost? The old world of work would have been your boss, right? Right. Manager. Their job is to make sure that if, you know, you cost the company 80, you produce 100. Today, in a way, it's not their job anymore. It's your job as the employee. I'm speaking specifically about employees. You need to make sure you produce more than what you cost. Because if it's the other way around, you're not going to stay for long. Now, true, it used to be your, you know, your boss's job to coach you, to mentor you if they were a good manager, leader, and make sure that gap is healthy. But in today's world where people switch jobs every two years, where employers change their needs every two years, so they hire different people every two years, it's just because you know the pace is so high, it can't be on the boss's responsibility anymore. So it falls down on the employee. So there's a lot of research today actually that backs this up and said, you know, personal development became the employee's perspective. Companies should empower their employees to develop themselves, not develop them. So instead of feeding, you need to like teach them how to fish. But from the employee perspective, you also need to embrace that. I believe this is also where the biggest opportunity is because if you do it earlier than others and you're able to overwhelm and over deliver to your boss and show that you can do more things, you create your own promotion. So it's not about which promotions are available next year. You're not shopping for a promotion. Create the promotion you want. So it's, it's, a, it's just to look at things from a different angle. Okay. And to touch on that, it almost sounds like something else I heard you mention in your content about not being a customer in your own life. And so that's essentially what it's promoting, right? 
Yeah, so this is a more like, you know, um, direct way of saying it, okay. um, maybe a more aggressive way to communicate it. I'm trying to be delicate here, but the, the, the more um, Israeli way of saying it, is, it would be something like, look, you're not the customer in your life. You're the owner. Like a lot of people go to college, they try to shop for a career path. College not going to, you know, the university's job is not to, to supply you a career path. The university's job is to give you skills, mindset, you know, learn how to research, learn how to write papers. They teach you how to fight, like, you know, gladiators school, but they will not tell you who to fight and where and for which general. That's for you to decide. So people expect university to do that. You know, the career center is supposed to help me find the job where I'll feel meaningful and, you know, I'll do meaningful things and I'll be part of a good team. And I just want to have, you know, good people. And I really, I don't need, I don't want too much to earn. I just want a decent, honest salary. And I also want, and I want, and I want a good boss as a leader and me, 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 and what I want. You're not in the center here. Which companies do you want to serve? Which companies do you want to be a part of? Why? If you're willing to go and earn less, just in order to be part of what those companies are doing, if you communicate that to them and you show that you can bring unique value to them, not just because of your commitment, but also because your unique value proposition, just like any good business leader would do to promote sales, not only you'll not make less, but they'll, they're looking for people like you. So don't take life as a customer. You know, you don't like the wife or husband, you switch. You don't like your job, switch. I don't like the, the you know, whatever, switch. It's, career is not a consumption good. I like that career is not a consumption good. I've never heard that one before. That's, I'll have to write that one down. Yeah, I don't remember where, I, not mine. I don't remember where I heard it, but it's not a consumption product. Or not a consumption good, it's an investment vehicle. Meaning, I mean, think about it. The word business, literally the word business. I'm willing to bet that for 99.999% of whoever is listening, which is probably, you know, one or two people, I'm kidding, probably like 3 million people, the 3 million of you out there. What is the word business? What's the word business? What does it stand for? For the 99.999%, probably emotionally, before they have to think about it, they will default to business equals how to make money. What's business? You know, making money. Companies, they do business, they make money. And I'm like, if you really think about it, the word business comes from the word busy. What do you choose to be busy with? It has to do with that. If there's no commitment and intention, if it's not important for you, if it's just about the money, the first moment it'll become difficult, you'll think about alternatives. Not only that, someone who has less skills, who's less capable, but more committed, will be more diligent and over time will take over, like, like steal your meal. And the truth is, these things are hard. I mean, it's a marathon. And it's not... You know, it's not easy. So you rather do it in places that you really care about. That's what I'm pushing for. It's not easy to find that place. But I also don't think that everyone should have the same path and kind of journey that I'm going through. 
I really fell in love with a certain mission. But I know that not everybody has like, you know, something that they'll just fall in love with and will be like dogmatic and committed. I, I understand that. It's definitely so, understandable. Yeah. So, you know, here's something, you know, for three years since in between when I started acting as a freelancer and until I became like full time, you know, doing my own thing. For three years, I had a day job and I was doing my thing on the side. I didn't know if it's going to grow. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to build it over three years. I have a business plan because then, you know, I'll be able to turn it over. I knew that if I'm going to do what I want full time back when I started, I'm not going to make enough. On the other hand, if I go and take a full-time day job and I'm going to do nothing that relates to my core passion, I'm going to fade, like I'm going to fade over time. I'm going to decay. So I ended up having like a healthy mix. I went to an employer that from the get-go, I communicated to that employer what it's important for me. And, you know, we had an understanding from the beginning. So instead of, you know, a lot of people play poker, you know, at work, you know, they're looking for a job behind the scenes and, you know, the boss is looking for another employee and like, there's no trust. Everybody's playing poker so people feel lonely and they're, you know, insecure. And my takeaway from that, I didn't plan it, but I said, you know what, maybe it's good to, you know, for a lot of people, they have what they really love doing and it fills in 30% of their time. And for the other 60%, the other uh, 70%, you know, they have a day job and it's because of that disconnect, they are able to give 100% of work because they know there's something else that fulfills them. And when they give 100% for the thing that fulfills them on the side, they don't expect that to replace what they do at work. And it's a very healthy mix. And I appreciate you sharing that. And something I think is also important that can tie into this is also having a growth mindset whenever you decide to take that path, like what you've taken to dedicate yourself to your mission. One thing I'd say is that it has a direct correlation to the level of success you can have whenever you start to work towards something on your own, especially something that you're passionate with. Passionate with. So what would you say is... Uh, the importance of a growth mindset and how would you, I guess, what tips would you give for the listeners to be able to develop that as they move through life? Ah, okay. So two things here. Uh, before that, just for the previous point, if those of you are looking for what I just blurred about. So um, I wrote about it in the context of believe it or not, Superman and Clark Kent. So uh, there's a post out there that I wrote called in defense of Clark Kent because Superman was not Superman all day long. He had a day job, but he had a healthy mix. Superman had to make a living out of, you know, helping the fire forces and the police. He would not make enough money. He needed that, you know, mix. So that's for the uh, Superman and Clark Kent analogy for having a side hustle, basically. Um, as for what you asked about growth mindset, I will say the following. So something that I think about a lot lately is, um, you know, when you're too locked in on something. A very wise lady told me a few years ago um, that the North Star is really important, but the North Star itself is irrelevant. 
it's like the purpose is to direct to the north direction. So a lot of people are locked on a specific thing like the North Star. And if they don't get it, they think they lost. But the North Star is irrelevant. The North Direction is relevant. So um, in terms of growth mindset, knowing to differentiate between the North Star and the North Direction. We need stars. We need the North Star, this specific point, the specific you know, job title, that specific dream, that specific client or project or you know, creation that you want to make. It's important. But also knowing that the reason you want that thing is bigger. And the re that bigger reason, that why, is the North direction. The North Star is just a way to um, envision and materialize the North direction in a specific way so we could envision it. So that's one thing, growth mindset, um, no to not being locked into the North Star, aim for it, but knowing that it's just a way to focus on the North direction. Look, anyone who has experienced freelancing or being an entrepreneur or even being a manager in a corporation may relate to the idea that the three most important or difficult things that I think people struggle with, including me, are loneliness, uncertainty, and patience. So whether you're starting your own business or you know, you're working on a startup or you're carving your path you know, in the organization to your career goals, a lot of people at the end of the day, they feel uncertainty because most of the things are not in our control. Um, and you need a lot of patience. Nothing's going to happen overnight. A lot of people talk about patience uh, online around that topic and loneliness. Loneliness is something that for many years was, you know, correlated with entrepreneurship. You know, the entrepreneurial journey is lonely. You know, those entrepreneurs, you know, the, it's a lonely journey. I think it's true for any leadership journey, whether that's thought leadership, community leadership, managerial leadership inside the organization or entrepreneurial freelancing. It's a very lonely journey. And coping with those things and understanding that you're not solving them. You're not overcoming them. You fight them all the time and you become, you know, they grow you these struggles, that's a growth mindset. Right, and to harp on what you said about the loneliness portion of it, I can definitely relate to that when it comes to living a lifestyle that's different than the norm. And especially whenever you're doing the work that you do, it's not going to be common that you come across people that prioritize the same things that you do. And so what are some tips that you would give to people that are in a similar situation when it comes to finding like-minded people or uh, working with the fact that for the most part, you're going to have to do a lot of this stuff alone if you want to work towards that better life. So, you know, different people have different ways of doing things. So there's no one size fits all. I can share that for me, um, there are many periods where um, I think it's healthy to get mad, especially if the alternative is getting sad. So, when something, you know, when shit hits the fan, if you get sad, 
that ends up with Ben and Jerry's in front of the TV or Netflix or whatever, which leads to, you know, it's okay to be sad, but not always it leads to action. When you get mad when things don't work, you want to do something. Like, let's try a chance to re-examine how you were actually showing up in the world, which is a manners issue. Your manner, your manner, how you speak, listen, behave, how you, the energy that you come from, all that's your manner. To examine that to see whether it's really working for you or not. And I think anybody can do that, regardless of where you are in socioeconomic status, right? Right. And I guess to kind of jump in right here, one thing I wanted to touch on that you brought up that I think is very important that a lot of people don't pay attention to as far as like how impactful it can be is that thing that you mentioned about people giving you that positive feedback, telling you what you're doing well. That's something I definitely could have used more of because one yeah. thing I'll say is that whenever you get those, that, that affirmation of, you know, how well you're doing in one aspect, it boosts self-esteem, it boosts confidence, it gives you energy to keep on doing whatever it is you're doing. Because if all you're hearing is what you're doing wrong, if all you're hearing is just that constructive feedback without the good, it kind of gets to the point, or at least I'll say from my experience, it would get to the point to where I kind of feel like, what is the point exactly? And yes, I'm, I'm getting all this negative feedback. I'm hearing about what I'm always doing wrong. I, this might just not be for me. And then the yeah. thing about it really was that I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. Once I actually right. gained some perspective and, you know, was getting some positivity in my ear, that's when I started to see I'm actually in a much better spot than I thought. I can give you a quick example of that. So please do. Yeah. Believe it or not, when I was a junior in high school, uh, close to the end of that year, I wasn't even considering going to college after high school. So what I figured I was going to do is just enlist in the Air Force. And that was kind of because of what we just talked about. I was always hearing about the negatives and such and what I was doing wrong, how I might have been a loser in this aspect or not doing well or not doing enough or being lazy. And it kind of got to the point to where it distracted me from the positives, from what I was doing and what like the, the potential was for me to be able to do in the future. So it got to the point to where I kind of shut down and was defeating myself. But then some different events happened during my senior year to where you know, eventually getting good feedback from people and seeing how I compared, especially when like class rankings came out and all that, I figured, you know, why not go ahead and just uh, apply, you know, yeah. Yeah. and everything. And then I guess the rest was history, but yeah. just getting that little bit of positivity and it wasn't even a lot, just hearing, you know, one, two comments and just making a few comparisons that one day when we got our class rankings were the things that led to me saying, you know, I might be better than I thought I was. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. But then the other thing you kind of touched on, I think we should definitely kind of dive into is the importance of manners and people's success, of course, because that's what your book is about. But yes, to be more specific. What are some of the ways that you see a lot of people in modern day America limiting their own opportunities just from having that lack of manners? Or I'll give not you knowing how to handle themselves. Yeah. So um, I'll share two examples that I write about in the book. Um, and, um, and I think you can see this as I paint the picture. So one example was a young man that I called Gabriel. I, I changed most of the names uh, either because I didn't remember what their actual names were or I wanted to protect their identity because they're, they're, who they actually were weren't, weren't important to the story. Um, 
in my job as a, a, a the associate administrator for education, I would often go around the country to events that NASA had, and NASA had an event in Southern California uh, at an air show where they brought in a lot of students uh, to. It's like a science fair, so they had projects and things that they were doing. This is something that NASA did a lot, and I tell the story of. And I've done this a lot of times. So there's, there's sort of a typical rhythm that happens. You know, I go to a different booth and, you know, the kids are kind of shy, you know, because some big guys come in there and, and you know, I'll ask them some questions and they'll tell me what they're doing. And some of the kids are just, you know, really incredibly smart. And I pretend like I know what they're talking about. But I, I mean, I definitely like, wow, I don't know what this dude's talking about. This is pretty incredible. Um. And so I was at this one event, and this one experience just really impacted me because as I was walking down the booths, I was getting ready to approach another booth, and I saw these two young kids that I judged to be of Mexican heritage. I don't really know. That's how they showed up to me. And, and the only reason I mention that is that NASA spends a lot of time and effort to inspire people of color to be part of NASA because traditionally NASA wasn't that way, right? It was pretty much a, a non, non, you know, people of color organization, right? It's gotten a lot better. So we put a lot of effort into that. So I saw these and I, and the thing that I noticed is that both of the kids were standing up waiting for me and that none of the other kids had done that. In fact, most of the kids, when I went to their booth, none of them stood up. And um, so I, it caught my eye, and I, I went up there, and as soon as I got there, the first young man that I called Gabriel put his hand out and say and said, you know, you know, welcome to my booth, Mr. James. I'm really excited to share with you about the project that Robert and I are working on. He had his partner with him. And and he was he looked me straight in the eye. He he was respectful, and, you know, he called me sir, and he called me by my name. Now, why is that important? I had a name tag on, but none of the other kids bothered to look at it to know what my name was. And, and I, I'm not saying that that's critically important. What I'm saying is this kid was aware. This kid paid attention. This kid had presence. This kid had some humility. And when he proceeded to talk to me about what he was doing, he was amazing. He had an amazing command of what this particular project was. But he didn't drone on and on and on. He would talk for a while, and he would stop and said, do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? And so I'd ask him a couple questions and says, well, I'd like to share with you about something else. And then he'd hand it off to his teammate. And after a while, I said to this guy, I said, dude, how old are you, man? And he goes, well, I'm 11. I'm like, you're 11? Because in my mind, I would have hired him on the spot. But we only could hire, you have to be 16 to be hired as an intern. I would have hired him on the spot. Why? The 11-year-old. 11-year-old. Yeah, no, made a better impression than the older kids. Totally. He made a better impression than half of my colleagues at NASA. Because number one, this kid was willing to... He, he sought support. He was present. He wasn't fidgety. He had a sense of awareness. I could teach him all the technical skills he would need to know to do his job. But the hardest thing for me to teach anybody is manners. And this kid had great manners. In fact, after a while, I said, 
are your parents here? And he goes, yeah. And he pointed them out to me. They were standing in the back looking at him with pride. I said, excuse me a minute. And I went over to his parents and I looked at him in the eye and I said, whatever you did to rear that kid, you have done a phenomenal job. You should be very proud of yourself. And they said, thank you very much. That's all they said. Contrast that with another story I tell in the book. I'm at an airport. My wife and I are getting ready to take a trip. We park the car. We're walking to the terminal. On the ground, I see a pink neck neck pillow, right? Like you put on your neck when you're flying on an airplane. Some It obviously fell off somebody's luggage they're going. It's, oh, it's too bad. So I picked it up, and I'm going to take it in, trying to find out if they have a lost and found. So I go up to the counter when I go into the terminal, and I said, is there a lost and found someplace? You know, I found this out in the, uh, on outside the ground. And the, the lady behind the counter says, oh, well, there's an information booth right over there. Why don't you just take it to the person over there, and, you know, they'll take care of it. I said, great. I walk up to the information booth. As I get closer... I noticed there was a young man, I would say about 17, maybe 18. He had headphones on, and he was looking at his smartphone. Never looked up. I get right up to him, and I said, excuse me, uh, I was advised to bring this over here. And and halfway through that, he, he didn't, so you imagine he was looking down at his phone. He, he didn't put his head up and looked at me, he raised his eyes, looked at me, and he took one of his AirPods out as if to say, like, what did you say? And he, and I repeated what I said, and then he said, okay, and he took the pillow, didn't say thank you or nothing like that. And my reaction was, this is a young man who missed an opportunity. I talk in the book, uh, one of my chapters is on interviewing. And I talk about how you're always interviewing. Whether or not you're in a formal interview or not, you need to act like you are always interviewed because you never know who you're talking to. And this young man missed his opportunity. Now, like my mother said, I don't know his story, I don't know his background, and I could be forgiving about a lot of that. But had he shown any sense of presence like Gabriel did, and, you know, thank you very much, and I really appreciate it. Or if he stood up and showed me a little bit of deference and respect, the fact that I walked over there. I mean, it wasn't like he was busy. He was looking at his games or whatever he was doing. Um, it could have been because of the kind of person I happen to be, and it might have been different if it was somebody else that, you know, depending on what he was up to in life, I could have been a resource for him. But he gave me zero reason to want to help him. Zero. He could have said, you know, hey, where are you headed off to today? And I would have said, I'm going to Hawaii. Oh, what do you do? He said, oh, I, I work for the space agency. Oh, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, we could have had a nice little banter. And I have done this several times, Monty, where I have talked to young people and found out that they like space, and, but they didn't know what to do. And so I gave them my business card. I said, right, you know, I'll tell you how to get an internship or, you know, some, give you some advice, you know. And some people take me up on that. But this kid gave me no reason to do it. So Gabriel, I would have hired in in an instant. This young man, I don't even know what his name was. I, I Unfortunately, he missed an opportunity. Those are two examples where manners made the difference. My brother is a commercial airline pilot. He's a captain. 
you would think that in aviation world, because everything is very strict and prescribed, that if once you're a pilot, you know, you, you know how to fly planes, that manners doesn't particularly matter. My brother will beg to differ. He tells a story about how manners often in an interview is the tiebreaker. He tells a story about a man who walked into an interview. Uh, my brother happened to be a part of it. And the interviewer asked this man, well, why should we hire you? And the man sat back and crossed his arms and said, well, I'm a, you know, 10-year, whatever it is, marine aviator, and I've flown jets. You know, so that alone ought to make me qualified or whatever, because he just thought his you-know-what didn't stink. Uh, he did not get the job. I'm not surprised. His manners flunked him. He could fly. I'm, I, he could fly a plane. And you got to know how to fly the plane, right? No one's going to hire you to fly for an airline just because you got good manners. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. You have to know how to fly the plane. Fill in the blank on any job you're talking about, right? If you're an accountant, you better know how to do your numbers. They're not going to hire you because you got great manners, but you don't know how to, you know, manage an Excel spreadsheet, right? What I'm saying is that if it's, if, if you have to compete for a promotion, you have to compete for a job, you have to compete for the attention of your leadership, manners is the tiebreaker. It'll make a difference. Manners will take you where brains and money won't. That's the message. You know, to kind of touch on this, to give you my perspective on it, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Like when you talked about the example with talking to Gabriel and how it made you want to give him opportunities due to the fact that the way he carried himself resonated with you as opposed to the other young man where, you know, just his demeanor and everything and the way he interacted with you made it to where there would have been no possibility for that. One of the things that I can say is that as I've developed over the years and developed into a person with a stronger presence, better personality, and I guess better manners, it led to me meeting more people who were similar to me, I guess, or you could say attracting those people and keeping them around because I align with them, but also I'll say that it did lead to more opportunities because there would be times where I would be at, let's say, networking events or anything like that. And even having a job lined up already just from having the people skills to where if you're you're standing like by someone's table or, or by the bar and like you have to be waiting in line, uh, you make some conversation, you know, ask them about yes. the ring that they're wearing or something like that. And yes. people have given me job offers. Yes. Uh, asked me what I was working on, connected on yes. LinkedIn, all types of other things. And so it's, I wouldn't say it's crazy how it works, but it makes, it makes sense how the people like you talk about that have those manners and those people skills s tend to, uh, I guess, progress further in life as opposed to the yes. people who it never is, work on those it things. It is crazy to think about, but you know what you're talking about? Just be curious about people authentically. And don't do it because you want something like, okay, I'm going to play my manners game so I can. That's not going to work. People are going to see you for a phony that you are if you do that. But just be naturally curious about somebody. You know, you meet some guy and, you know, maybe you don't know anything about him. It's like, hey, you know, how did you get in this? And, you know, I like to ask people questions. You know, how did you meet? Or how did you find out about this? Or, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges you have in life? Or what is the biggest lessons that you learned? You know, what can you tell me? I mean, just be curious about people. Not for any agenda, but just because you want to get to know them. The paradox is that when you're like that, 
people are like, wow, this this guy is very interesting, right? They don't even know why you're interesting. They're interesting because you're interested in them. You didn't babble on about yourself, and I call it credentialing, you know, where, oh, I went to Harvard, and I, you know, I did this, and I'm on the crew team, and blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares about all that. I mean, it might be interesting for a minute. Right. But what people appreciate is when you are interested in them. Gabriel wanted to know what I thought about his project, and he was sincere, how could I? How could I make this better? No kid, no kid ever asked me how I can help make their science project better. I didn't even understand what the brother was working on. I said, like, "I can't help you, man. I don't know, but I know somebody who can help you if you really want some information, right?" Right. Just be curious about people, just naturally. You know, my my dad. This is something I learned from my dad. My my dad, because he was in the foreign service, we used to travel a lot. And here's one of the games my dad. And, my brother and me would play. We would sit in a cafe or an airport lounge, you know, waiting for our flight. And we would look at people and he would say, okay, see the guy over there in the blue suit? Let's make up a story about him. We would just make up stories about who he was based on how he carried himself when we looked. Now, we never checked it out. We never went and asked the guy. You know, that would be rude. But we would play this game. But what he was teaching us was to be observant. To, well, no, I don't think he's a businessman because he's not carrying a briefcase. And, you know, maybe he's going to go visit his mom or something like that. You know, we would just come up with these stories. He was teaching us the art of observation. And when you have an opportunity to, to encounter somebody personally, try to be the one who talks the less. Right? See, I'm a right. horrible example because I talk a lot. My dad <laughs> told me I talked a lot. But I know better. And when I'm in a social environment, you know, I can turn it off. But, you know, you get me on a roll, Kamadi, and I'm, I'm moving here, brother. So this, hang on, right? I'm cranking right. up. So, you know, if you're talking to a group of friends or, or you're in a networking environment, be the one to talk the less. Try to find out the most about the other person, like you're going to get a quiz on it. And then you'd be astonished how everybody wants you on their team, and you didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, if, if it, I it, is, it is crazy how that works, but it, it does, as long as you're not doing it like a game, like you're trying to work a number, right? I mean, because if you're not like a trained spy, you're, you're going to get caught, and people are going to find you to be disingenuous and, and then it's going to backfire. So you just have to naturally say, God, what can I find out about this person? I'm just curious for no agenda, no, no reason other than you're curious. Yeah. To kind of talk about this same topic, I guess one of the things that kind of showed me the importance of making it about other people whenever you're talking to them and having that, that genuine curiosity is just seeing what the effects can be when you do the opposite of that. I forgot what term you used to, that you referred to, but whenever you're oh, credentialing, that's what you said. Whenever yeah. you go to people and whenever you have conversation with them, you feel the need to list off all the things that you're doing, that sort of thing. I saw that firsthand, uh, pretty much how that can affect how people treat you and everything just from honestly from, from my dad. And so that was one of the yeah. things that, uh, that definitely made it to where, you know, in a lot of social environments and such, uh, we didn't make the most friends. Because it was always a thing where, you know, what had to be talked about was what 
you know, we were doing, what we had going on, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, to be honest, most people don't really want to hear about that. Uh, I read a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by uh, Dale Carnegie. And it pretty much talks about how, I guess the same thing that you mentioned, how people want to talk about themselves. They like talking about themselves. Yeah. The way that I kind of started to approach things was I already know what I do and already have like my sense of worth that comes from something internal. And so I don't need to go and express that to other people to get that external validation for him to tell me, oh, good job and and all that, you know, with strangers anyway. You know, you like to hear that from people that that you care about and that are like in your direct life. But when it comes to John or Susie or whoever else that you've met for the first time will only be around for the next five minutes. I don't need to tell them my whole life story to get that, that external validation from them. But something that's been pretty uh, fulfilling is whenever you take the time to hear about these people and hear about their stories, uh, it kind of gives you perspective. And you also find out some pretty interesting stuff. Yes. The, th- the thing about yes. it is that a lot of people move through life as if they're like the main character as some some sort of like book <laughs> or story or video game. And yeah. everybody else is just like supporting cast. But everybody yeah. is a main character. And so when you kind yes. of look at it from that perspective, uh, you kind of get out of your own mode where you're thinking about, okay, has this uh, served me? What am I going to do? And you get into that mode of trying to hear what everyone else is going through. And, you know, a lot of times it can offer you some insights and some advice into how to handle things that are going on in your own life. And that's so that's right. definitely something I, I recommend that people check out along with your book too, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because like you said, just having those basic skills uh, has made it to where I've been able to get many more opportunities and maybe some of my peers just because I was willing yeah. to one listen and then two was actually genuinely curious about the things that these people were doing. And it That's wasn't right. like with an ulterior That's motive right. or something like that thinking, okay, if I ask them this, then maybe it'll give me an internship or a job offer or something. That's right. Yeah. You got it exactly right. And, I know it may seem like a fine line to people, um, but it's 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 really starts with where you're coming from. And if you find yourself needing to credential, you know, needing to talk about, as as my mentor used to say, you know, don't read your clippings. Clippings were the newspaper articles the day after the big football game that talked about how well you did, you know, cause then it goes to your head like, Oh wow, look at me. You know, they said that I was really great. Um, because it sets you up in case the next time they say you suck and then you're like, you feel like crap, right? You like, Oh wow. I thought I was great. You know? So you have to feel great because you just decide that internally and you don't you don't need anybody to give you agency right so um it's 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 if you find yourself needing to do that then this is a good opportunity to ask yourself what is missing in your life that you feel a need to have those external validation and if you can figure out what that is, then it might magically dissipate, meaning that you don't really need it anymore. Um, it's it's not about you, you know. It really isn't. And um, but if you find yourself constantly doing that, you know, ask yourself why. What is it that I'm hungry for? What do I? What am I after? And this is where your team can be helpful because 
you can go to someone you trust or you can go to a professional, a therapist or somebody who's an expert in this and take a look at that. Because it may be that when you were a kid, your dad or your mom never told you that they loved you, that you were wonderful just because of who you were. Maybe they were always trying to, through you, you know, deal with their own faults and own issues and trying to make sure you're better than them. A lot of people discover that later in life that, you know, the reason my parents were critical is because they didn't want me to end up like they ended up, but they didn't have a way of communicating that. So, you know, figure out where you're coming from, you know, then then that's where the authenticity is, right? When you're engaging people and curious about people and asking them questions, you're just being authentic. You know, I'm I love to ask people about their backgrounds and stories and how they made it. I love to ask couples how they met. You know, every time I ask a couple that, it's amazing. I can, I can almost see their love affair happening all over again, the way they look at each other. It's just incredible. I'm glad that this is something that, uh, that you mentioned. And so that's definitely something people to reflect on if they know that that's an issue for them. Uh, wondering why they need to do that credentialing. And I think one of the things that has kind of led to me not, I guess, defaulting to that has been finding like a strong why behind the things I do and like a strong like purpose that's attached to my internal identity. Because yeah. one thing I'll say that I guess gives you that same feeling, if not something richer, is whenever you see the things that you do creating a positive impact. Like the thing about doing the podcast and all that is that uh, it's not necessarily like the the number of streams or anything like that that I get that makes me happy, although that is great and it's it's a good way to track progress. The thing yeah. that makes me feel good is whenever I get those reviews on Apple Podcasts where someone talks about how impactful yeah. the content was or something like that, because instead of, I guess, you know, getting numbers or like for that validation, I guess you can say, what it shows me is that something that I'm doing actually has real value if that makes yes, sense outside of does, me not just making me feel good but other people too yeah you're you're willing to put yourself out there and be humble and raw and share your story and bring other people into the conversation you know people are gonna you know people are gonna have an awakening moment for things and and you know you may not ever find out all the people that you've transformed one day you might you may not, but it, you're not looking for that to affirm what you're doing is the right thing to do because you just know in your heart that giving of yourself is the right thing to do, and it is having an impact. Um, you know, I'm inspired. I told you I've this was, I've done lots of podcasts. I was looking forward to this one more than any of them. I mean, I and that's no disrespect for the other people; they were wonderful people, but this one. This one spoke to me, and it's because of how you're doing it and who you are, and you're still in your journey, and you're willing to put yourself out to do it. That's powerful. That That is, that is powerful because it gives space to other people to say, man, if that brother can do it, man, I could probably do it too. Or at yeah, least I'll really try. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It, it means... It means a lot to me when I get feedback like that, you know, and it's not, you know, even though people will, will say positive things, you know, it's rare that you get comments like that where, you know, talking about how 
you looked forward to coming on the show so much and oh, just yeah. how it resonated with you. It really just kind of, I guess, helps me to put things into perspective of like how impactful something like this can be. And it just makes me optimistic about about the future for it. You know, right now we're touching a certain number of people, but you know, we want to be able to double, triple, quadruple, yeah. quintuple that eventually. And so, you yeah. know, it definitely means a, a lot to me that well, uh, it meant gonna, that much to you to be on the show. I appreciate that. And I'm going to, I'm going to help you do that. Like I said, I got a big mouth and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Well, um, well, that pretty much uh, wraps everything up. So we touched on, I think, everything we had planned and we're kind of low on time now. But for people who want to uh, find information about you or reach out, uh, how can they do that? Uh, thank you. I'm happy to, to connect with anybody. I do have a website. It's just my full first, middle and last name, Donald Gregory James, DonaldGregoryJames.com. Um, in the about section is, uh, you know, my biography. There is a place in the website where people can, um, uh, email me. Uh, but the email address is similar to the book title. It's manners will take you at gmail.com. So if you remember the title of the book, manners will take you where brains and money won't, it's the first part of that. Manners will take you at gmail.com. And I welcome anybody to reach out, and um, I I invite people to really try on manners as a lens of engaging the world to see if it can make a difference uh, for the journey that you're on. And uh, and I I welcome feedback, uh, whatever kind of feedback, critical or not critical. Uh, so thank you. Yes. Manners will take you at gmail.com and Donald Gregory James.com is my website. All right, then. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, Donald. You're welcome. It's getting to the end of my day and, um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having the dinner and relaxing and all of that. But, uh, this, this really was an honor and a pleasure and I admire what you're doing. And, you know, I, I want to stay connected with you and I want to stay in touch. And, um, I, I just know that, um, I'm here to be your partner in the journey that you're on. Cause, um, this, this is what I'm about right now is giving. So thank you for that. And I'll, I'll definitely make sure that we stay in touch. All right. All right then we'll take care. Peace.